This is the Gospel Light Christian High School, home of the Torchbearers. This is your ninth grade English, Lesson 12. I am your instructor, Marika White. Our goals for this lesson include to examine the parts of a story plot, exposition, complication, and resolution, to read and answer questions about twice freed, to learn and use new vocabulary words, to examine the writing style of Patricia M. St. John, to, answer and, and to learn to answer essay questions, and to learn to be concerned, that is, bearing another's burdens with great affection and admiration. Our Bible passage for this lesson is Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, which reads, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Twice Freed, a Christian novel by Patricia M. St. John, illustrates how a good story is put together. The plot of every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, or exposition, the characters are introduced. Here's a description of some of the characters in the book. She was about 12 years old, small and slender, with smooth dark hair hanging to her waist. Her cheeks were flushed with heat, and her lap was full of the flowers she had been gathering. Her simple tunic was of rich material, and her sandals were new and expensive. Her bearing, even as she played, was that of a little queen. Our next character description, a brown-skinned boy of 14, with the grace and agility of a young wild cat. From early dawn till late at night, he belonged to his master, and outwardly bowed to his discipline. But at this hour, he belonged to himself, and lived and conquered and exalted. Our next character description, he was not old, but he seemed tired and leaned on his staff. He was not a particularly fine-looking man, but there was something about him that attracted the boy's attention. Perhaps it was the quiet strength of his lean face, or the clearness of his eyes. He was dressed simply, and when he came near, he spoke in the local Phrygian dialect. Most of the characters in Twice Freed were real people mentioned in the Bible. As you read the book, notice how Patricia M. St. John has woven what the Bible tells us about each of these people into the plot of the story. The middle of the story is the largest part and is called the complication. In the complication, things become more complicated as the main conflict of the story develops. The conflict can be man against man, man against a group, his family, town, society, and so on, man against nature, man against himself, or man against God. The main character is the protagonist, and the one who opposes him is the antagonist. The conflict eventually leads to a climax. When the all-important action is taken, or the all-important decision is made, at the climax, we know whether the protagonist or antagonist wins. The end of the story is called the resolution. In the resolution, any questions such as, 
what happens to the other characters, or how some minor conflict will be settled, is resolved or answered. An enjoyable way to increase your vocabulary is to read new words in a story and gather their meaning from the context. Here's an expert, or rather an excerpt from Twice, from chapters 1 through 6 of Twice Freed. It was mid-afternoon in early July and the parched world was in general asleep. A boy was climbing the canyon with grace and agility of a young wild cat. The tremulous sunlight falling upon her through the pine boughs. He had not been expected back until after Philemon's siesta. Somewhat fearfully he entered the atrium. Philemon turned sharply on the young Trant. That impudent Onesimus should have been keeping company with Polemon's daughter. His eyes gimlet shrewd. She thanked him gravely and politely, but with eyes averted. He was brought into the council as a result of some street brawl. The brigands came swooping down from the Taurus Mountains, along with a bracken that closed the lower hillsides. The air was heady as they sauntered down the road. We can learn the meaning of many words by reading them in the context of a story. We cannot use these new words in conversation, however, unless we know how to pronounce them. Throughout Twice Free, the author Patricia M. St. John weaves in the exact words or similar words to certain scripture passages. She does this in a very natural way by having characters say them as part of their conversation. Doing this makes the scriptures come alive in a new and exciting way. Patricia M. St. John also weaves incidents recorded in scripture into the plot of the story. Sometimes the characters are involved in the incident and sometimes they only mention the incident. For example, your father actually saw one of them take hold of a well-known lame beggar and command him in the name of Jesus to rise up and walk. 
That's found in Acts chapter 3. The mob got angry in the end, began shrieking and cursing, but he never even seemed to see them. The crowd all went mad and fell on him and dragged him outside the city and started to stone him. Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 19, the whole street seemed to sway and the words rose in a deafening roar. Great, great, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Down with Paul. He holds forth daily as soon as the scholars leave for their midday meal and goes on till the ninth hour when they return. I hear that the school is crowded all through the siesta hour. They say he has many disciples. By examining Patricia M. St. John's writing style, we can learn ways to improve our own writing style. Notice she uses lively verbs and verbals, adjectives and adverbs effectively, and figures of speech. Example, her eyes suddenly twinkled with amusement. No, Mrs. Irene, twittered the nurse. The boys sauntered through the streets. Merry crowds jostled with each other at the entrance of the shops. Because of the words she uses, the lively verbs and verbals, you can actually picture the event that's taking place. He had quickly discovered that Rome had two faces. In neither of them had he seen any good thing. The golden godlike emperor, whom he had once seen reciting his own poems in a public theater, was a fat, hysterical, and loose-mouthed young man. They were men with enormous frames and bulging muscles, giant-like men in full training, but their faces were coarse and brutalized, most of them at gluttonously. Over in the corner sat a man unlike any whom Onesimus had seen before, a fair-haired, blue-eyed giant who ate with restraint. He smiled a gentle, half-apologetic smile. Let's review these figures of speech, all of which Patricia M. St. John uses in Twice Freed. A simile. A simile is a comparison of two unlike objects by the use of the words like or as. For example, the glider soared like an eagle. Then there's metaphor, an implied comparison of two unlike objects where one thing is called something else. Example, the glider was a soaring bird. Then there's personification, a description of a lifeless object or idea as if it were alive or had human qualities. Example, the clouds wept. In this lesson, you will experience several kinds of test questions, multiple choice matching and short answer. Another kind of test question is the essay question. An essay question requires that you write at least one paragraph and often several paragraphs. However, when you have a plan, answering essay questions is greatly simplified.
First, let's notice the keywords that introduce essay questions. We need to know what they mean in order to answer essay questions. Words include explain, describe, discuss, compare, contrast, summarize, evaluate, criticize. Here are some examples of essay questions which could be asked about twice freed. One, explain why the title twice freed is a good title for this book. Two, contrast the city of Athens with the city of Rome. Three, describe how Archippus changed after he got saved. Four, discuss the opportunities Onesimus had to accept the Savior. Five, summarize Onesimus' career as a gladiator. And six, summarize Onesimus' idea that freedom is doing what you want to do. Now let's answer essay question one, and here's the plan. First you decide what main point you want to make. Then write a brief outline about that point. Next following your outline, write your answer. Then four, reread your answer and correct any mistakes. Let's see if we can do an outline for the essay question, which is, explain why the title Twice Freed is a good title for this book. The main point, Twice Freed, is a good title for the book. Outline, one, Onesimus wanted to be free. Two, Onesimus found freedom in Christ. He realized his effort had failed and he surrendered to Christ. Three, Philemon released Onesimus from his physical bonds. Onesimus returned to his former master. Onesimus accepted his slavery. Then we can write the title Patricia M. St. John chose for her book is a good one because it explains exactly what happened to Onesimus. Born a slave, Onesimus hated his slavery and sought to be free. Eventually he did gain his freedom, but not in a way he had planned. As Onesimus fought freedom in his own way, he became more enslaved by guilt and wickedness. When he finally realized that all of efforts, all of his efforts rather had failed, he surrendered to Jesus. Then he experienced true freedom, the freedom of sins forgiven. Onesimus realized that freedom in Christ meant making right the wrongs of his past. So he returned to his former master, Philemon. Paul, however, wrote a letter to Philemon explaining that Onesimus was now a Christian. As a Christian, Onesimus was willing to accept his slavery, but Philemon released him from his bondage. This made Onesimus a free man. Now he was truly twice freed. And after you're done, you reread and correct any errors. And now for a wisdom reading for this lesson. What is wisdom and how can it help me succeed? Mr. Lovejoy, do you have anything that would explain the difference between humanistic and theistic government? Well, Reginald, the best source I know is God's love, or rather God's word. 
and planning to write an essay for the student convention on the political left and right. I've heard newscasters use those terms, but I need a better understanding from God's perspective. Dad, the scripture and that chart you have been sharing with us in family devotions might help Reginald. It helped me understand that any government is a reflection of the character of its people. That's a great suggestion. I have a copy of that chart here in my Bible. Let's sit down and I'll share a few scriptural principles. Everything on the chart is based on God's word. I'm glad to see you're interested and I believe you have chosen a great topic. That would be great, Reginald said. This chart on the principle of the left and the right will be very helpful. Why does the chart have humanism on the left, theism on the right? In every culture there is a left and a right. Language varies but the principle is always the same. Dad, explain about the eyes, ears and hands. Eyes, ears, hands, what do they have to do with the political spectrum? Man is symmetrically designed with a right eye and a left eye, a right ear and a left ear, a right foot and a left foot, a right hand and a left hand. Within every culture, philosophical meanings and positions are expressed as being on the right or being on the left. Does that principle apply to politics as well? In economics, politics, theology and so forth, people take their personal positions somewhere on the spectrum between the two extremes of the left and the right. They think, make decisions, and act based upon their position. How do people locate their position on this chart? Each man's philosophy is rooted in his relationship with God. Therefore, where he settles on the spectrum depends on his relation to biblical absolutes. What do you mean by biblical absolutes? God's word is a record of right and wrong. The biblical statutes, laws, and principles which are right are called absolutes. Oh, I see. That's why God's absolute principles are over on the right end of the chart, and the principles moving from right to left are increasingly humanistic. But why is humanism on the left and absolutes on the right? In every language there is a right. The word right comes from the same root as the words righteous and righteousness. We say you're right, meaning you're correct. You never say you're left. Is that true all over the world and throughout history? Yes, the word left in English, the Romans languages, Greek, Hebrew, and hundreds of other languages convey the idea of sinister or reckless. In Spanish, siniestro, left, means to degenerate or to grow wild. The French word gotche, left, means to twist something or to corrupt. In Spanish, diestra, right, has a moral connotation of reasonable justice or made correct. The principle is consistent worldwide. Are you saying that humanism over on the left is life based on man's ways rather than on God's ways? Yes, you're right. Scripture always identifies God's right hand but not his left. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And did you know, Ecclesiastes 10.2 states, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left.
the Jewish rabbis taught the scriptures to write, or rather they taught the scribes to write with their right hands. That's why a politician or economist who rejects God's absolutes finds himself somewhere on the left. Good insight, Reginald. The substance of truth, ideals, perfection, and absolutes is on the right. Evil does not have substance. It is a departure from and absence of the substance of good. The left is the farthest extreme from that basic substance. Wouldn't left also mean a lack of wisdom? A person who doesn't walk with God would not be able to express wisdom. Wouldn't that mark him as a humanist? Someone who sets up his own values? You're catching the idea. Righteousness is an absolute substance expressing God's character, measuring the mark of deity. God is good. God is love. Sin is to miss the mark of God's goodness. Thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal are principles that express absolutes. Men on the left are not necessarily identified as evil, but their political position and basic philosophy of life are not dominated or inspired by absolute truth. Men on the left cannot walk in wisdom. Ah, the difference then between a humanistic and theistic government is really man's relationship with God. The closer government is to God's absolutes, the more righteous it is. The farther it is to the left, the less righteous it can be. That's true. As anyone deviates from God's laws, he practices life according to what is right in his own opinion. He becomes a law unto himself. He lives by philosophy of humanism, deciding what is right or the present situation. Life is relative for him, doing things the way he wishes rather than the way God's word commands. Is that why the chart has the word relative way over on the left? Yes, when men reject God's absolutes, government either becomes one of consensus in which officials do whatever the majority agrees is acceptable for the present, or government is ruled by a dictator who sets himself up as the final authority. Both systems are to the left of the spectrum of absolutes. So that places Hitler, Caesar, Stalin, and other dictators on the left as humanists. Correct again, Reginald. Then men like Daniel, Joseph, and David, who walked with God, were closer to the right. What about George Washington, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, or Ronald Reagan? Wouldn't they be on the right? Probably, but why do you think so? Because those men were believers, they accepted the Bible as absolute authority. They recognized God as a supreme authority. They believed that men should be ruled by God's word. That's good insight, Christy. People will be ruled either by the Lord from within, by walking with God in wisdom, or by powerful government from without. I see something else here too. The closer a nation walks with God, the fewer government regulations are needed to rule the people. That's why the word conservative in the United States and in much of the free world is over on the right. It just means, or rather I think it means, that rule by God's absolutes minimizes the need for government regulations. Oh, I see. 
a political leader who is conservative stands more to the right towards theistic principles than others and does not believe a powerful government to control people is necessary. Politicians who reject God's absolutes and believe in extensive government regulations are called liberals. They are way over on the left and are very humanistic. Here's the point. People will be either ruled by biblical absolutes from their hearts requiring less government or be ruled by humanistic laws enforced by powerful government authority. The degree to which people allow God to rule them determines how far to the right they are on the spectrum. I think I understand now. You're saying that liberals tend to be relativists, humanists, who encourage control by government authority, while conservatives tend to be absolutists, who encourage control by moral restraint based on obedience to biblical absolutes. But remember, Alexander Hamilton said, a people get the kind of government they deserve. Government is a reflection of the quality and character of the people over which it rules. In a free society, a humanistic people will elect a humanistic government. Humanists run for office on exaggerated promises of what they will give to people. Conservatives run for office on responsibilities they hold out to people which must be maintained. A gimme generation votes for liberals, not realizing it means more laws, taxes and controls instead of handouts and benefits. But on the other hand, a charactered people will elect conservative statesmen who appeal to responsibility. A more responsible people require fewer laws to control them, for they have God's laws within that control them. That's true, and that's why we need biblical education. You have a good perspective of the principle of left and right, Reginald. You can probably write your essay without any difficulty. Thanks for explaining the difference between a humanistic and a theistic government, and thanks for helping me understand about God's absolutes and what he's doing in the world today. This concludes Lesson 12 of 9th Grade English of the Gospelite Christian High School, home of the Torchbearers.